Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Andy? Are you there? I'm here. I need to start with a uh, cinema report from Portland. Oh, okay. I have been to the cinema. I have, uh, I have seen what it hath, hath wrought. Tell me, but don't it, spoil anything, because I have not been to the cinema. It it hath wrought Genesis. Uh-huh. It hath spelt it incorrectly, but it hath wrought it. Right. And it hath torn the franchise asunder. <laughs> Even more so than the previous one? Andy? <laughs> I, oh, man. Let me... I need to start with this. I, I have I've, I've captured uh, two things uh, in the cinema. This week, the first one was a recommendation from uh, from our uh, film buddy uh, Steve Sarmento, who said, "Make sure you go see uh, me, Earl, and the Dying Girl." Right. Okay. I don't want to talk about that because I thought it was such a fine film. Even I am not interested in spoiling it until mm. you see it. Okay. I, I haven't. I haven't seen it. I don't even think it's playing near me. Mm. Delightful. Delightful. Well, good. I All look right. forward to one day seeing it. You should see it one day. Now, uh, then I would like to talk about Terminator Genesis because, you know, as a child of 1984, a teen in 1984, I I have a, a heart that is full of love for uh, Terminator and Terminator 2. Yes. And uh, that love begins to deteriorate, to wane uh, through 3 and 4. And I was hopeful when I saw the first trailer of Terminator Genesis, uh, that maybe there was a chance, there was a shot. I should have known. I should have. I should have allowed that natural cynicism to step in and say, "Pete, don't be a dummy. You're going to have that heart fully broken." And it was. It was fully broken. It is like this film is like this shoebox full of memories of vastly superior movies. It is just. It's this heartbreaking disappointment. It's like it was made by people who. Uh, are happy living up to a collection of Terminator greatest hits clips on YouTube. That's what it feels like. Like all they know about Terminator is what they've seen in three minute clips on YouTube. They it is it is horrible. It is terrible. It should not be seen. Wow. It was and I I got a few chuckles uh, out of uh, out of Arnold who ends up being a glorified set piece. He is really poorly used in this film. It, it, he, they give him this stupid smile line, which he uses way too often. Uh, the script was so bad. That's, it just, it's, it's terrible. I would have loved to have seen Amelia Clark in a film where, that, that, was, that was able to showcase um, that sort of Sarah Connor strength that I remember from episodes one and two um, in a way that uh, was not 
hampered by this boat anchor of a script. I mean, it was just awful. Uh, and wow. so, yeah, it was, I was. I can't. I it's just. It is junk. I'm. It's, it's so disappointing. So disappointing. And it's disappointing because the people who are in it, I like the people, and I want the best for those people. I want them to be successful. I want Jai Courtney to be a successful action star. I want him to be that. I do. I want him to see some material that'll let him do just do the thing. Okay, let me say one thing. If I have to find one nice thing to say, the way they reproduce the 1984 stuff, they go back and forth between um, you know many different timelines, and and they they really I think do a good job of recreating stuff that was in the first film in in 1984. Um, really looked. Great. I, I don't th- I don't think they were using that film and intercutting any material from that. I think they no. rebuilt it and it was great. Right. I, I thought they did a good job. But that's like how do they do on Bill Paxton's 30, part? Thirty five <laughs> seconds. Um, <laughs> I can't talk to you about it. <laughs> so bad the whole that's thing. That's too bad. That's too bad. So that was what I needed to talk about there. Well, in <laughs> speaking of bad movies. <laughs> I may not have made it to the theater, but I did finally get to watch uh, Transformers Age of Extinction. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember hardly anything about that film. It, that is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was it was one of those late night streaming movies. that I'm like, oh, I'll just turn this on and maybe I'll fall asleep to it. And then I just couldn't fall asleep because it was just bad. And you know, just one of those things. My brain doesn't shut off when I'm watching a bad movie for some reason. And so there it was two and a half hours later. I'm just like, Why was this so long? And what was the point? <laughs> but yeah, so so maybe uh, Terminator Genesis will end up falling into that camp and it'll keep me up late one night. That would be a sad but probably best use for that film. <laughs> See it when you know when it'll be good. You should be sick. Wait until you're really ill, right? Really Maybe. ill, heavily medicated, and uh, then it'll be perfect. Ah, that's too bad. All right. Uh, what else do we have? We have some follow up. Yeah, we do have a few little notes to follow up on from uh, one from. Good old Stephen Smart, who uh, replied to our Ninochka post over on Facebook and said, Ninochka is probably my least favorite Garbo. My favorite would probably be Queen Christina, but there are some great films in her short filmography. As for Lubitsch, everyone needs to watch Trouble in Paradise for some pre-code goodness. And that's one that we didn't bring up. That's not one I have seen, and I definitely need to put that one on my on my radar because uh, it's uh, one of the Lubitsches that I've heard about quite a bit, but I've just not gotten around to. We, uh, I, I don't... I. I... <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I think maybe the Gone with the Wind effect may have impacted our appreciation for Ninochka in a way that did not agree with, uh, uh, obviously, the good Stephen Smart, but others as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, ben Lott over at the Blot Spot said, where I, did, where I didn't agree with you, um, pretty much everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was genuinely shocked when you started talking positive about this movie. There was nothing that worked for me. It was a romantic comedy that was neither romantic nor comedic. And Greta Garbo's performance, ugh! To paraphrase the great Roger Ebert, to call her character cardboard would be an insult to a useful packing material. How am I supposed to believe Melvin Douglas fell for that monotone and extraordinary bland woman? I'm happy that they could advertise that Garbo laughs. At least she was having fun with Nanachka. Your ranking 161 out of 191, my ranking 189. 
so not a fan not a fan <laughs> you know what's funny is just you know i think we we may have reviewed it highly and i'm i am willing to admit that that the gone with the wind effect had had impacted me on that i and i think if we if we were to do the show again even now i may not be as kind to it i disagree uh, I thought she was uh, charming. I liked her smile. I liked their romance. It happened too quickly, but it's a 1939 light comedy. I'm okay with that. I, I felt good about it. But I still feel like 161 out of 191 is a pretty darn good place for it. Yeah, I agree. And we may have been praising it positively, but, I mean, it was very light, And it's but it's not something that was going to certainly crack the top 100. On Absolutely. So, so I agree. I can see where Ben's coming from, but... Um, but I am okay with where it landed considering I still enjoyed it. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, and And, how about the good, uh, what did you have something else? Oh, just then, then Alex Hammond. Alex Hammond. There's two N's. Haman? Might be Haman. Haman. I'm not quite sure, Alex. Sorry, we're butchering your last name. But uh, you also left us a message over on Facebook. Said, hey, guys, great show. Burned through all of the episodes, admittedly minus the ones about movies I have never watched, in just a few months. Sometimes listening to two episodes in a single day. That's a lot of us I'm to take. I'm so sorry. I, uh, yes. <laughs> Still, one question keeps me up at night. Why no American Hustle? Ooh, Andy, why no American Hustle? That's a that's a good question. I don't know. It's just it, it hasn't been built into any list. It would be an interesting film to talk about. I think uh, uh, David O. Russell can certainly make some interesting films. And American Hustle. I just realized that his name rhymes with the title <laughs> <laughs> and cracked myself up. Uh, David O. Russell, good old American Hustle. Uh, yes, no, he he makes some very interesting films. Uh, certainly. I would say Three Kings would probably be my favorite in his filmography. Um, but I, th- uh, I think I like a lot of. I think oh, I ahead. like more movies of his than you do, right? I think so, probably. Yeah, yeah. I because I and I know he's a he's a controversial director, but I you know American Hustle, uh, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, uh, The Fighter, um, you know Three Kings, obviously. Uh, I, uh, gosh, flirting with disaster. Did I like that movie? I, that was fun. I, I thought it was kind of fun. Ben Stiller and uh, that's right. I know uh, I did. Tyler Moore. Yes, absolutely. Taylioni. Yeah. I yeah. do love that Taylioni. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I think it it is worth talking about David O. Russell's films, um, and probably worth doing a doing a even a mini series. But I would uh, absolutely strike uh, I Heart Huckabee's from the list. Man, did I have problems with that film. That's. Uh... I remember thinking it was a very interesting film, but I remember nothing about it. Yeah, well, that says it all. <laughs> yeah. So His other films, I mean, I enjoy, but I don't think he's ever topped Three Kings, even though his most recent films are the ones he's getting all the accolades for. Three Kings was stellar. Really yes. stellar. Yeah. All right. Well, I agree uh, with Alex, and I think we need to rectify this in the coming uh, soon's. The coming soon. In the coming soon. You know, I was showing off our. Uh, I, I was at dinner and I was showing off. Somebody asked me about the that we were sitting at dinner and she turns around. And she says, "So, you know, how do you how far ahead do you know?" And so I brought up the Google spreadsheet on our our phone that takes us into you know, into the well into two thousand twenty, and uh, and so I don't know when we're gonna shuffle uh, shuffle uh, David O. Russell in there, but I think we should. I'm in favor of it. Okay, well, I am. Uh, I'm happy to chat about that uh, when it comes around. I think, 
I think it's great getting listener feedback like this so that we can throw options in the mix that we hadn't thought of. So thank you very much for sending that message over to us, Alex. Yes, thank you, Alex. And thanks for listening, even even though you're listening to two a day. I'm sorry about that. I'm sure there's, <laughs> the bends are probably playing. Into yes, make sure, you, make sure you come up Decompress, slowly. come up slowly. <laughs> uh, did you want to talk about dead people? Uh, you know, there have been a few deaths oh, lately. So and it's... It's horrible. I don't. I can't remember if we brought up James Horner a few weeks ago, but that's just horribly tragic. Yeah. Just everything about how he died, and uh, and you know, at the age, I mean, he had such a a long career still ahead of him. So it's just tragic that he died in a plane crash. Uh, and uh, yeah, just you know, my heart definitely goes out to him and his family. Um, and it's just a rough time. But then, yeah, recently there have been a few other people who have passed away, and it's uh, just. You know, it's really kind of heartbreaking. Um, one was, I mean, kind of probably for both of us, a little bit of a uh, boyhood crush, I would say. I don't know about you, but mm. uh, Can't Buy Me Love, right? Mm-hmm. Amanda Peterson. Mm-hmm. I, I think pretty much everyone was kind of in love with her. Um, well, all the guys were in love with her. She was just a just a cute little thing. Um, and then she was also in Explorers. I think actually that's where I saw her before Can't Buy Me Love. Wow. And uh, yeah, and then uh, she kind of retired from acting. And uh, I know she had gone in and out of some some drug issues and things like that. But I don't know if that, I, I don't think anything's been released yet as far as what the cause of death was for her. Oh, it's such um, a shame. Yeah, and she's uh, she was back up in Greeley, Colorado, like uh, you know, hanging out in my old stomping ground, right by Fort Collins. So, yeah, yeah sad wow. to hear about that. That is really sad. Um, who else was on your list? You had three on your list: James Horner, super sad; Amanda Peterson, can't believe it; and then the third one is Irwin Keys. Irwin Keys, who's not a name that people probably uh, uh, remember. Um, but he's a face. He's just a very memorable face for those for people who have seen him in movies. Uh, he's hard to forget his look because he's just got a very definable look. The film that I most remember him for Flintstones was, actually, was not Flintstones, <laughs> although he House of a Thousand Corpses. He wasn't both of those. Black and Dynamite. House of a Thousand Corpses. <laughs> oh, you. No, it was actually uh, Intolerable Cruelty, the uh, the Coen Brothers film. Oh, yeah, which that's is right. uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it was kind of a weird one for them, but I still kind of like it. But he was Wheezy Joe, like the I can't remember. He was like an asthmatic serial or asthmatic hitman or something yeah. like that. And I just really loved him in that film. But uh, yeah, he kind of you know got started around the time of the Warriors way back in the late seventies with uh, Walter Hill's film, and uh, just had a face that um, people loved to cast in really interesting character sorts of roles. So yeah, he just passed away as well at the age of sixty-three. Oh, it's too bad. You're right. He is a utility face. He's been in a ton of stuff, uh, and uh, it's it's good to. To go back and uh, pay your respects. Go rent Black Dynamite or House of a Thousand Corpses 2003 or The Flintstones. (laughs) Or Intolerable Cruelty. (laughs) Or The Warriors. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right. Uh, Let's see. Do we have any other uh, old news? Nothing else? I don't think there's any other news. All right. I think then we should finally tell the people where we're from. 
Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, everybody. And we spoil movies tonight. On the show, our third in our series on the great films of 1939 with Frank Capra's political charmer, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Before we do that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you, too, are a sucker for lost causes, then you're also the kind of person who should head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And for that... We're off to Mary Scotland for a full report from the Supreme Commander of all things around questionable ponies, Stephen Smart. Hey guys, it's uh, Stephen here again from the Instagram Guess the Movie Pony Prize Challenge. Well, like a Scottish heatwave, it was over before it started, after Atnell 2 spotted nurse Jessica Lang lurking in the background of Image 2. This week's movie was Tootsie, uh, a comedy from 1982, Directed by Sidney Pollock, it stars Dustin Hoffman, who is supported by Terry Garr and Bill Murray. And the film also features the first appearance of Gina Davis. It's uh, great stuff. So congrats at Nell 2, well played, and you're entered to win the Pony Prize. And thanks to everyone who took part this week, and if you haven't already, why not join in? The more the merrier. And as always, a new challenge starts Friday. And so thanks, guys, and uh, see you later. Do you like having this uh, Stephen Smart report, Andy? I love it. I mean, I I, I miss getting to be a part of it, but you'll, you'll <laughs> I, I should say I, I miss getting I miss getting to revel in the glory for Steve. But <laughs> oh, this is terrible. No, I actually absolutely <laughs> love having him be more of a part of the show. So it's uh, it's great. I'm thrilled. And I can't believe it took us this long to figure it out. <laughs> I know. I know. It is my favorite. We've been, I mean, the time zone kills us. We've been wanting to have uh, Stephen be more of a part of the show forever. He does a ton of work managing the Pony Prize and, and working on Instagram. And we just so deeply appreciate it. I'm so glad to be getting these field reports all the way from Scotland. So once again, thanks to Stephen for being a part of it. And thanks to everybody for playing. Uh, make sure you head over Instagram.com slash the next reel. Join up and uh, and guess the movie. Super fun. Absolutely. And, and he's pretty good. He is pretty good. Yeah. I love his pictures. Andy, it's time. Let's do those trailers. <laughs> I am stunned, Andy. I am shocked and awed. Wait a minute. I got to, you know what? I'm going back to the transcript. Uh, so I say, I say for the trailer, I say, I'm all over Creed in Slack. I say, I'm going to do Creed as a trailer. And I'm ready for you to say, oh, I can't wait for that. And what do you say? Ah, you say, you put on your pipe and your smoking jacket and you say, oh, yes, looks interesting. I'm so behind on the Rocky movies. I've only seen the first one. And I say, all caps, what? Exclamation point, question mark. Man, your list of shame is non-trivial. And you say, again, shockingly, oddly, I don't feel any shame about missing the other Rocky movies. Smirky, winky face. Shock, Andy. I'm not saying all of the Rocky movies are great, but Rocky 2, Rocky 3... 
you're missing some like pop culture resonance to the nth, man. I know, I know, I know. Oh. Um, what do you want to hear? I'll watch them for you. <laughs> I'm still waiting for your predestination uh, report. Just it's so sitting, you know. It's, it's sitting by my TV. Of it's waiting it for is. me. Yeah, I watched Transformers instead, though. Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, no. I take that back. I was, should, out of, yes. I was out of state when I watched Transformers. I wasn't near predestination. <laughs> my film, Creed, is, the I think, the sequel that we may need in the Rocky franchise. That's what I'm going to say. Former heavyweight world champ Rocky Balboa serves as a trainer and mentor to Adonis Creed, son of his late friend and former rival Apollo Creed. I'll tell you what I love about the trailer. I love the trailer because they uh, they launched the trailer on its own merits. We don't see uh, Rocky until the very end. Uh, and I'm sure that he'll play a much bigger part in the film, but I love that uh, writer-director Ryan Coogler um, holds Michael B. Jordan uh, to his own craft and his own his own body, his muscles, his strength, and they let him showcase a little bit in the uh, in the trailer before they give they give it over to to Sylvester Stallone. Uh, I I felt really great watching this trailer, and I I hope it's not another. Please don't let it be another Terminator dis- Terminator destruction of my uh, youth. Uh, yeah, but you have to. I mean. Going into a Rocky movie, you already kind of ac- yep. acknowledge that there are many stumbles. Uh, yes, you you certainly do. But I also can say, I really liked Fruitvale Station. I can say oh, that out sure. loud. Yes, I can say that out loud. Uh, so I can I can also say uh, that I like Michael B. Jordan. Uh, I loved Chronicle, right? I loved that he was in there. I, obviously, he was in Fruitvale Station. Uh, you know, I'm I am a fan. Uh, of him being in Fantastic Four, I like the look of him. I think he's he's making some good choices. Um, so you know, I feel like we have we have the makings of something that could be awesome. Really, could be awesome. And Felicia Rashad, man, Felicia Rashad. I I, I actually really agree with you. I think this looks really interesting. I love the direction they're taking. I think it's very smart going this route to kind of continue the Rocky franchise by finding a way to bring it down in age. And, yep. Well, not necessarily age, like, oh, we have to make it for the, the younger audiences. I didn't mean it that way. I just mean I, it seemed like Sylvester Stallone wanted to keep making these, but it seemed like he kind of passed a point where he should be, but he was still making them. Yes, I, and, I think that's and, probably true. And I think the, uh, what was the boxing movie, a Grudge Match? Is that what it was with him and uh, Robert De Niro? Yeah, I think so. As it was kind of the, I, yeah, the Rocky not... versus Raging Bull sort of, uh, you know, kind of blend, kind yeah. of a mashup of those two as old boxers fighting. I think that was kind of the, the tipping point where we said, okay, uh, he should probably not be in any more boxing movies. But this is a really great way to bring that back around and actually get a chance to continue this franchise yeah i think so too i mean the same thing you could say the same thing about uh you know rambo i mean that incredibly (laughs) i mean wildly violent uh romp that he took in the last rambo film right uh you know but but the rocky wasn't the rocky balboa the last one in 2006 wasn't that the wasn't that the the was that the street fight one i don't know (laughs) Oh, you haven't I, seen. Oh, of course, you haven't right. seen them. Ugh. Yeah. You make me sick. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, I am looking forward to this film, uh, and it is coming out November 25th, 2015. What's yours? Excellent. Mine is The Finest Hours, a new uh, Disney film uh, based on the true story of when a Coast Guard has to make a daring rescue off the coast of Cape Cod after a pair of oil tankers are destroyed during a blizzard in 1952. It, uh, it looks really gripping. It looks like another take on the whole perfect storm. What would you call that genre? Uh, disaster at sea Yeah, genre. like the lost at sea kind of a thing. Yeah. It's uh, you know big, epic... Uh, you know, struggle of a whole bunch of men, sailors trapped on these two mm-hmm. boats, trying to figure out how to survive. And you've got a bunch of people on the boats. You've got a little rescue boat that's not quite big enough to fit them all. How are you going to save all these people? It looks really, uh, it, I mean, it looks like a really safe, exciting sort of movie. You know, I and I, I say that in the best possible way. It, it looks like they're making a really interesting um uh, true story sort of film that's going to grip the audience and it's going to at the end relieve us as we see a wonderful success i'm assuming it's going to be a success um and uh it 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 just has that vibe that you know i kind of like i get into those sorts of movies sometimes chris pine is in it ben foster's in it eric banna uh holiday granger you've got um Casey Affleck is in it, and Abraham Ben Ruby, who uh, I worked on on uh, Ambush at Dark Canyon, he's in it, and it, uh, I don't know, it's got a vibe that I kind of like, and uh, you know, there's something about big disaster movies that even if it uh, has issues, I still enjoy, because, you know, it's it's like the whole Poseidon adventure sort of factor. It just makes it for fun watching. I'm with you. You know who does a, a pretty good Cape Cod? That Chris Pine. He actually does. Straight I out of Brewster. Not only that, but he also looked like he came straight out of the 50s. So yeah. <laughs> he yes, worked he did. really well on both on both counts. I, you know, I'm, I'm with you on all these things. I love seeing Eric Bana in this film. Uh, I, I, uh, I was a big fan of Eric. I was a big fan of Eric Bana's Hulk. I said it. Uh, and, uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see him in this film, but mostly all I could think about and Casey Affleck too, shout out to Casey Affleck, cause you know, friend of the show. Uh, but it was at Chris Pine that I am most excited to see in this movie. And I'm most excited to see the work that he is doing, man, that guy is making choices, just all the right choices to not be locked into Captain Kirk. And I think he's just such a smart actor. Uh, you know, in in terms of managing his brand. And I'm very excited to see, you know, everything he does. I'm surprised. I agree. I think he's uh, he has a lot of fun playing with all of his different roles, whether it's uh, being the prince in Into the mm-hmm. Woods or trying his hand at, uh, even though we didn't like it, but trying his hand at being the more serious, um, you know, sci- uh, you know thinking-minded Jack Ryan, uh, you know, something like that, or going way back to something like Carriers, which came out the same year as Star Trek, which I right. thought was just a fantastic, very intense, creepy indie horror film. Yep, I absolutely agree. And I don't like horror. But that's a good one. That's, that's a good one. That's, that's a creepy one. Yep. Yes, it is. So, yes, uh, that's Christopher Whitelaw Pine leading the charge in The Finest Hours, which comes out, unfortunately, this is the downside, is it's coming out January 29th next year. Oh, geez. I'm I'm hoping that that changes because I don't want to think that this is going to be a stinker just because it has a January release date. Andy? Yes. Listen, 
the simpleton of all time, a big-eyed patriot. He knows Washington and Lincoln by heart. He stood at attention in the governor's presence, collects stray boys and cats. Mr. Smith goes to Washington is a significant picture. It is significant because it emphasizes democracy in action. I consider it a real privilege and a real experience to have played even a minor part under the distinguished direction of Frank Capra. By far the greatest picture of filmdom's top director, three-time winner of the coveted Academy Award, the most timely, the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood, a homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly-wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans with those inimitable Capra overtones of drama, laughter and romance, plus the finest supporting cast ever assembled. Oh, Andy, Mr. Smith, I please tell me that I'm not completely uh, bamboozled. I'm, I'm under the Ninochka curse and that I'm not alone in delightfully loving this film. You're not. And I think that, I mean, I haven't seen either of the next two films that we're going to be talking about, The Roaring Twenties or Only Angels Have Wings, but... I have a sense that this is going to be the top of my 1939 list. Oh. And I, I think it's just, it's it's one of my, it's just a top film. I mean, this is such a solid film. I think it's so heartwarming. It's so honest and just so touching and funny and just such a, a, a great film to watch. And it still is something that is actually relevant to. Oh, absolutely. I, I put this on, uh, I started it uh, the night before yesterday. And, you know, I put it on around 7.30. You know, I was just watching it in the living room, and I thought, this is going to be my strategy. I just want to see if I can con my family into joining me for this film. And my daughter walks in, and the first thing she says is, ugh, black and white? <laughs> right? <laughs> I got the eye roll. I said, yeah, you know, I know, you're not interested. <clears throat> so I, that's it. I'm silent. And then she sits down on the arm of the sofa. And my son comes in. My son, he's, he's like, ugh. Why is it all? Because it's on the you know the HD TV and it's it's pillar boxed. It says why is right. it all squishy? Oh well, it's an old movie. Ugh. And they're both sitting down. Hour and ten minutes later, when I have to turn it off because it's bath time, they're both absolutely riveted in the politics of Mister Smith goes to Washington. I conned them both into watching it. We finished it last night. They loved it. They loved it. Awesome. Right. That's so great to hear. Ah, oh, such a relief. Such a relief. I feel like I've done something really good in the universe today. <laughs> uh, 1939, it is a political comedy drama, of course, starring Jim's, Jim's the young Jim's Stewart, and uh, Gene Arthur, ah, uh, adorable Gene Arthur, about uh, uh, this, uh, this uh, Midwestern uh, guy who goes to Washington and has a, a bigger impact than anybody ever imagined. It yes. is a celebration of the filibuster, and uh, it is a, uh, a practically a documentary on the evil, dark underbelly of the business impact on politics in Washington. So it, it stood up well truth? to you. Yes, it did. Absolutely. Yeah, and I had watched this fairly recently, maybe a couple months ago, two or three months ago. Mm-hmm. It's it, and I loved it then. I was excited to watch it again. It's one of those films that it's just. I mean, it's a Frank Capra film. I think his films 
stand the test of time so well because he really taps into the characters and this level of honesty with the characters that just make them so easy to watch and so easy to connect with. I had a, just a very easy time connecting with, um, uh, what was the last film that we talked about of his? Why did I just blank on it? Um, it happened one night. We did talk about that. Which yeah. I absolutely loved. And likewise with this film. They're just so easy to connect with. And this one has so much more going for it. I mean, not that I don't love it happened one night, but this one has so much more going for it because it actually is a look at our political system in the country. And I'm sure at the time, Capra was uh, feeling much more positive about, you know, there's just this one corrupt senator um, and this Mr. Smith is going to kind of turn things around and straighten everything out. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't realizing that as time went by, there'd be more and more corrupt senators corrupted by corporate interests and everything. Um, but it's just so interesting to look at now and look at our political system to just really get a glimpse at the dark side of what ours has become. And really now it's more, could our political system ever actually have a real Mr. Smith in it now? I'm not even sure a real Mr. Smith would even get elected. Would even bother, exactly. <laughs> real Mr. <laughs> Smith wouldn't even wouldn't even give it a shot. But what's you know, what's so funny when you look at it the way you just described it, uh it it it's almost like you you can see the people who watch this film and said, Wow, that Jim Taylor. What a role model. You mean we can <laughs> do that? Right. <laughs> Uh, yes, the Donald Trumps of the world. Textbook. <laughs> Are you telling me that because I have enough? You mean really? <laughs> it's like uh, shock and awe felt across the land. I love it. What's funny is that uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, who is uh, President Kennedy's father, at the time, and actually had been in the Hollywood system for a time. He was actually, I believe, in Europe at the time this came out. And I can't remember what he was doing. He was like the uh, some liaison. He was, or, a, he was the ambassador to Great Britain. Was he? Was the ambassador? Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he yep. was the ambassador. He actually told them that, oh, you you shouldn't release this in Europe. It's going to affect our relations with these countries because they're going to think we're corrupt. They're going to look down on the American system and all that. And it's just so funny that he did that because he himself was a Jim Taylor. Like if you look at his business dealings and the way that he strategized uh, his all of his business that he did uh, before and after his politics, he was Jim Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the the impact of this one surprised me as I was reading about it. The impact from the uh, from the Hayes office did that does that surprise you at all that there was some concern from the Hayes office about this film for me it seems you know and obviously I'm watching it with the benefit of you know uh, nearly a hundred years of uh, media behind me but um, media history uh, since the film was released but they were concerned that this would uh, that this film uh, would degrade would would act as a covert attack on the democratic form of government. It's, uh, yeah, I, I. It's sad to say that I'm not surprised. I think, <laughs> I think what it is is that the Hayes office started looking at everything that that could that they could see as potentially damaging in any way, or looking at something not in a good light. They started seeing everything 
as damaging. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's why it ended up collapsing because I think people were finally fed up. I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but it seems to me like, you know, it just seems they were going down a dark road um, of accusing. It's, it's just finger pointing, you know? Yeah, I, I do. You know, that that's the, the, the attack on democracy was the initial, um, you know, was the, the initial position by the Hayes office. But Joseph Breen, uh, who was the head of the office at the time? It, he reversed course, and I think his comment is 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 one that really is is worth noting uh, that the film is a grand yarn that will do a great deal of good for those who see it. And in my judgment, it is particularly fortunate that this kind of story is to be made at this time. Out of all of Senator Jeff's difficulties, there has been evolved the importance of a democracy, and there is splendidly emphasized the rich and glorious heritage which is ours and which comes when you have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Which I think is really is really a sound statement on this film. It is a sweet film, but an important one. It could be that he was looking at the unpublished story by Lewis Foster before it had been written. Because he didn't make that statement until the screenplay had actually been written yes. and submitted. So that's possible. And, and I mean... I don't know if the gentleman from Montana, uh, Lewis Foster's um, unpublished story, has ever has since been published. I didn't look into that, but um, that could be the reason. Yeah, there might have just been a, a different a tone. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and and it is interesting, and I think that the film it does a good job to present an isolated incidents and and not, um, you know, it doesn't point out the 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 flaws and the the sort of criminal misdeeds of every senator. And I also think it does a pretty darn good job of uh, really highlighting the story of Senator Payne uh, as, you know, as he kind of explains his evolution uh, from becoming the wide-eyed senator to becoming a guy who is compromised. This is, of course, Senator Payne played by wonderful Claude Rains uh, in this film. This is, I, I think this is my favorite role of his. Oh, you think so? I think so. Not the I, Invisible Man. I deeply enjoyed this. <laughs> he's been so good in so many films. Yeah. Claude Rains is just, he's one of my favorites. Anytime I see Claude Rains is in a movie, I know that there's at least one element I'm going to really enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Because he's just, he's just awesome. He's just, he's great. And he's, he's, you're right. He's fantastic in this. And in a part that is, uh, it's not blatantly written as somebody who's vocalizing how uh, his transformation is happening as he's kind of changing because of watching what's happening with Jefferson Smith. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's some great scenes of subtext as we just see his face as he's seeing what taylor is doing and as he's listening to what's going on and even as he's sitting there uh listening to jeff um being accused before the uh the hearing or when when jeff is doing his filibuster there are those great scenes of just his face and his reaction and you know when he when jefferson is looking at him and his eyes just move a little bit you can read so much guilt in that expression and it's so great the way he plays that but then it's just so great when he goes on the attack again it's like his verbal approach and and his outward approach is so aggressive toward jeff um while he, while when he's not you just see his face you can tell that it's eating him up 
I, I think that plays into, you know, the role of, of Jeff's journey from naivety to uh, understanding. Uh, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. You know, we were, I was trying to explain it to, to my kids, the journey from naivete to cynicism, which I think is on display in this film. And yet uh, what James Stewart's role is, is really there to highlight is, is the celebration of wisdom. Uh, you know, what comes when you have understanding and you don't fall prey to compromise. The, the scene in which uh, Senator uh, Smith confronts Senator Payne in Payne's office, and we get the sort of mini soliloquy from Payne uh, where he, he talks about his compromise, uh, it is, that is a pivot, a major pivot, not just in the film, but in, the, in, in Payne's um, character, because we've seen, you know, the way he works his face. And in fact, I think we've seen his guilt. We see his guilt on display from the very first moment we see Payne and Smith on stage together back in, you know, uh, Montana, when they, uh, when he says, you know, uh, when Smith stands up and says, I don't think I can do much good because you have such an incredible senator in Payne. Uh, you know, he was good friends with my father. And I think right mm-hmm. then we see pain, you know, we, we see on his face, oh my God, I can't believe I know what we're about to do to this poor guy. I yeah. know what, I know suddenly what I am is wrong. Yeah. And and that is, I mean, his transformation, the, his journey leading up to that soliloquy, and I compromised, yes, so that all these years I could stay in that Senate and serve the people in a thousand honest ways. Uh, I, I think that is... Uh, it's like a plea for Jeff to stop and and to end the way it does his storyline, uh, you know, to attempt to uh, to kill himself. Right, right. Is is you know, and and I think the film sort of makes light of that because that sequence is such a celebration, but it, it's a, an incredibly sorrowful moment. It really is, and uh, Frank Capra certainly was not one to ever shy away from suicidal tendencies in his films. Um, it comes up quite frequently um, throughout his career. And um, it, it, there's a, I think there's, that's kind of that level of darkness. This film doesn't, doesn't go into quite the level of darkness that he goes into in some of his other films. But I think that's where the darkness lies, is in that corruption and how it's basically destroying pain to the point where he does want to kill himself. And yes, the ending is so um, victorious when, when pain confesses and uh, and and really, uh, you know, Smith is victorious, and then and, but and and it ends so quickly. All of a sudden, it's just like, and then we're out. Yeah, the end. Um, and so you don't really get a chance to do any wrap ups with any of the characters. Uh, but um, and so yes, I think that there is a uh, an interesting element where we don't really linger, or we don't get to find out more about you know what happens to Payne, and is he going to end up being okay now. Um, or does he end up going to an institution because he's driven himself, you know, mad because of this whole thing or what? Um, we get out of it so quickly. So it's, it's an interesting way to end the story. It feels very abrupt to me. Yeah. But, uh, and I know there was another ending to the film that did get uh, cut. Yeah, I was because... just going to mention that. Did you, did, did you have a chance to read the script? 
I didn't look at the script, but I, I heard them talking about what was in the original ending, and then I guess it just didn't work. I, I don't think Capra was happy with the audience's reaction with it, so he just... Yeah, it's interesting, it. because we do, and, and that was the thing I, th- I I always think about this at the end of the film. What I really want to see is what happens to Jim Taylor, right? He's the right, ultimate yeah. you know, uh, mechanic behind all of this, and he's the industrialist, and we see him so actively trying to thwart all the good that is actually happening in the Senate as a result of Senator Smith. And in the original um, script, there is this sequence where we go back to, uh, you know, we go back to hometown and we're in the middle of a, um, you know, we see um, uh, Saunders and Smith in a parade, a giant parade around, and, and they've got these, you know, Smith to Senate to the Senate for life. And uh, we get uh, Hopper, the governor, saying, you know, I've just I've just begun. I'm gonna find more Jefferson Smiths. I'm gonna clean out our glorious state of every vestige of James Taylor. And and so we get to to see that Taylor has been thwarted and the city is free and finally flowing again. And and in that moment in this parade, uh, we see that uh, Smith sees uh, Payne standing in the crowd watching the parade, and Smith jumps out of the car and goes and grabs him and says, this parade is for you too. Come with me and get in the car. And so the two of them, you know, are are in this parade together. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, Smith and Saunders go back to his house and he introduces him to more birds and pets. It's actually very strange. The last line of that cut is... Uh, And in the pet shop, Saunders and Jeff are seen entering. On seeing Jeff, the animals go berserk. And in a comparative lull, Jeff says to them, meet Clarissa, fellas. And the scene fades out. The end. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, say what you will about the parade. I can see why they cut that sequence based on that last line alone. Yes. Weird. Weird, weird Dr. Doolittle feel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so funny. Oh, yeah, I don't quite understand that ending. Yeah. I mean, I can see the rest of it fitting in, though. You know, and that's, I guess that's, maybe he cut it just because of that one thing, but it does seem strange. I, I'm not even sure why the audiences wouldn't have been happy seeing that resolution. It, well, that's exactly it, right? It's because you, you sort of imagine that the audience is is keen for a resolution and that just winning uh, it, it may come off as a bit unsatisfactory, and and that's that's my feeling. I mean, I I you know this doesn't even satisfy my need to see Jim Taylor squirm. Um, you know it's it's fine, but and I get it, and I'm glad to end on a win. But Capra is so good at ending on up notes; it just sort of feels weird. The, well, because I mean, the last thing that we really see, uh, I mean, one of the last things we see of Jim Taylor is ordering his goons to go. <laughs> attack these children you know all of all <laughs> of uh, right. smith's boy rangers who are out spreading the the good word of smith and they're like they're like beating these kids up crashing into their cars running over their wagons that was the worst he ran <laughs> like, over the boy ranger wagon i know then they crash into the car i was uh, like man this is violent right. they run them off the road <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. an intense little sequence. I'm like, man, this this Taylor is serious. He really means business. Yeah. Oh my, 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 my. Well, what do we? Uh, what do we? Do you want to talk about uh, old uh, Edward Arnold? How'd you feel about his performance of the bad guy? 
Uh, I love Edward Arnold. He is great as this type of character. I mean, he's he's a great character actor from the period, and that's what he uh, really was known for was was character acting. In fact, he I think at one point he said that he was giving up um, trying to get the lead roles in things because people wanted him to lose weight, and so he he said oh, I gave up on that because I didn't want to lose any weight, so I just keep getting fatter and I keep getting better roles. <laughs> So he said, yeah, the bigger I got, the better character roles I received, because he really enjoyed these character roles. And you can just see him totally eating it up in this film. And he was great, and you can't take it with you. Come and get it a few years before that. I really loved him in that. Uh, But this film, I mean, he really is just a no-nonsense, cutthroat businessman who's ready to control uh, Washington and do everything he needs to do to get what he wants. I agree with you. He is a treat to watch and and uh, really just believable all the way through. I mean, he is he is the industrialist and even when he's barking out these those crazy orders and working the phones himself, getting his reporters to to print whatever he wants them to print. He's just diabolical and so overt about it. I mean, there is no there, there's no uh, he he doesn't need to hide any of his um, of his machinations. It's just, it's just out in the open and it's just brilliant and uh, totally buy it. Yeah, his, he, because he knows the only place he really needs to hide his machinations is actually in Congress and that's why he has pain doing all of his mm-hmm. bidding. Mm-hmm. So he's smart. And he certainly is one who's worked with uh, on and off with uh, Capro a number of times between this and then you can't take it with you before this. Meet John Doe after this. Uh, they had a good working relationship, so it's always nice to see him on screen. Let's see. Who else is? Uh, do you want to talk about? We, we skipped uh, James Stewart and Gene Arthur, and I think intentionally. Well, yeah. I mean, James Stewart, I mean, come on. He's yeah. one of the all-time greats. I just, I mean, he's he really is so easy to watch. I just can watch him do anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, and the, the interesting thing about him, I think, is that as wonderful as an actor as he was, and really at a point in his career where things were really just getting going, he signed up to go off to war. And he was actually the first actor, the first big actor to go and do that. Um, so he uh, he was a military flyer, and he actually um, was, gosh, I, I can't remember how, how many hours, like I, he was flying just a bunch and I don't know. He's just one of those guys who you got to kind of tip your hat to him because he really believed in the America of the time and wanted to help Europe and end Nazism and everything. And so uh, he was out there fighting with everyone else. He was. And it's funny. The timing is funny. I mean, this film came out in 39. He was drafted in 1940 and, uh, you know, served in the military actively until 1959. Uh, so, uh, you know, a long career and retired a brigadier general. Yeah. Not completely military. I mean, he was no. on and off making right, right, films. Right, right, right. right. But he was yeah. reserves after with the Air Force, he was reserved. But but just a, that is a, that's a significant career, a dual career. Um, and uh, you're right. Tip, it's, tip it's, of the hat. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I uh, and I just love. I mean, I I haven't hit a, a James Stewart movie that I don't love. I mean, he's just so great. Even American Tale, Five Goes West. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> come on. Ah, <laughs> uh, gotta love him. I can't comment, or else I may cry. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, boy, Gene Arthur. 
very easy to fall in love with. Uh, a very interesting actress, kind of um, along the lines of Greta Garbo. In fact, people call her kind of the the most mysterious actress next to Greta Garbo because she was really intimidated by the business, and she was somebody who was was not wanting to go out onto set because she it just made her so nervous, and so she would always hide in her trailer. But she got along so well with Capra. Um, she and and Stewart had just worked on You Can't Take It With You. Um, right before this one. And she really, you know, he really helped her find a way to get her performances across. And and she continued acting until the, uh, was it the early 50s when she did Shane? And that was her last film performance. And then she did some, she went back and forth uh, from retirement to doing little TV things here and there or stage. But really, she kind of was trying to step out of the, out of the spotlight. So, um, yeah, she's but she's so good in this. I, you know, this this line uh, from Bill Takak's review of of her, this marvelous marvelous screen comedian's best asset was only muffled during her seven years stint in silent films. That asset, it was of course her squeaky frog like voice, which silent era cinema audiences had simply no way of perceiving, must much less appreciating. I find that really funny because. Um, you know, in, in reading some of the other reviews and even some of the, the community reviews of this film, that comment comes up that, oh, my gosh, the film was great, but I hate her voice. I absolutely disagree with that. I find her voice uh, great. First of all, I think it's a, a wonderful character voice, but perfect for this film. And I think, you know, that you say she was intimidated by set is so funny to me because she comes off as so intimidating in this film. She is the person who knows everything. That voice has such a a clear and incisive timbre to it that, you know, when she speaks, you can't help but listen. And it makes it perfect for that Washington insider environment. I just, I love everything about her portrayal of this character. I agree. And I agree about her voice. I, I find it mesmerizing to listen to. Yep. And they make a great couple. Boy, do they. And, and she's just so good. And I just watched Shane again recently, and she's just so great there. I mean, there's nothing funny in that film. She's just straight up, uh, you know, a Western wife. Mm-hmm. But she just does so good in that one, too. She just r- carried herself on screen so well, whatever the role. So absolutely a, a highlight of the film, watching her in this. Absolutely. And, and another great character transformation, watching her go from the cynical, uh, you know, the person who, as she says to Payne, you know, I've, when I first came to this town, my eyes were big question marks. Now they're green dollar signs. She had gotten cynical at being a part of the system, but through Jeff and watching him win Congress because of his honesty, she actually makes a transformation. And that's just amazing to see. You know, should we talk a little bit about Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? We can. Well, I mean, because this this film, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, was supposed to be a sequel of Mr. Right. Deeds Goes to Town. And obviously that was a, a Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur film. And this was and supposed Frank Capra. to— Frank Capra. And, and yes, right, Frank Capra. And, and uh, it was only because uh, Gary Cooper was not available— uh, that we end up with this, um, you know, this Smith. Smith, you know, they change the name, they they pivot the story, and they put this uh, with Stuart and next to Gene Arthur. And I actually like them as a couple better. Uh, I find it a much sweeter engagement than Mr. Deeds. I I do too. I mean, I really like Mr. Deeds Goes to Town 
also. I think that's another yes. great no, I uh, agree. Capra film. Yeah. But this one has, uh, I mean, it's it really does feel like Capra really stepped it up to get this film to where it is. And um, I, I, yeah, I guess I think that, I, 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 well, I'm just glad that this exists rather than Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. Yes, yeah. I don't I know. Think, I, yeah, I don't know how you make that transition. Well, from no, I I don't either. I think yeah. there's there's a level of innocence and naivete and small townness that you really buy with Jimmy Stewart at the beginning of this, as he is, uh, you know, kind of introduced to us about ten fifteen minutes into the film, and and even as he first arrives in Washington, goes to. Uh, goes to Congress, everything. I mean, you really get a sense of him as that naive guy. And I I mean, I think Gary Cooper's great in Mr. Deeds, but I don't quite have that same sense of that naivete, yep. you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I, you can feel sort of Stewart's Iowa upbringing, you know? I mean, you can feel his his roots in this film. He's just so good. What You bring up something really interesting around the, the script for me, which I think is is an interesting point. I mean, in, in so many ways, this film is such a great example of the hero's journey. Uh, and what I love so much about the script is, you know, we don't meet Jefferson Smith. We don't actually see him until, as you say, like 15, 17 minutes into the film. But we get this experience of the old world, right? The world that he's living in through the voices of others without meeting him so well. Like, we know exactly who this guy is, right? The leader of this kind of faux Boy Scouts troop, the Boy Rangers. He is a a youth uh, he's a youth activist. He is, uh, you know, this fabulous scene uh, with happy, um, uh, is happy, what's his name? Happy Hooper, happy Hubert, happy Hooper, Hubert, <laughs> happy Hooper, uh, the governor and his so children, his children, uh, uh, a cast of six boys who love, love, love Jefferson Smith and Jefferson Smith's paper, newspaper that he publishes. The cast of boys uh, who is easily, uh, uh, you know, headed up by the wonderful Baby Dumpling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is the best. Uh, I, I don't know how you end up uh, letting that get in the credits, uh, actors uh, Larry Sims, but the credits says his Baby Dumpling. Anyway, so these kids tell the story of uh, of Jefferson Sims without us ever meeting Jefferson Sims. So we get a picture of exactly who this guy is and how he lives and how he exists in the, in the world as it is before we ever meet him. And I think that's really brilliant. Structurally, it just it's perfect. I, I, so I'm interested in your thoughts on the way the script is built. No, I think it's it's great. I mean, it, it sets up the world for us. And, I mean, normally you do introduce the protagonist earlier in your script, but having it designed where you build this this uh, well the the political machine and then also the tailor machine kind of that corporate machine in the first uh, sequence of the film so that you really see how all of this stuff is is uh, is designed how they've kind of made this system work for them and uh, what their now their goal is and then it gives us uh, it. It really kind of introduces this uh, this uh, curiosity factor. It really hooks the audience in because we know it's called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, but we don't know who this Mr. Smith is. We don't know. I mean, sure, we know Jimmy Stewart's in it, but it's like, okay, we want to see what this guy's all about. 
And now we're kind of on the edge of our seats going, okay, who is it? We don't know what this guy is. They're talking about all these other guys. How does Smith get here? It's a really clever way to begin the film to, to lead us down a road where we just don't know when we're going to actually get to meet Smith and how he even gets to be a part of this film because they don't even bring him up. It's not until the kids bring him up around the dinner table and then there's the fantastic coin flip that the, that the governor does to actually decide that, that I'm going to pick Smith to be the one who's gonna who I'm gonna send over, uh, where the coin actually lands on its side. I looked up the odds of that. It's like one in six thousand <laughs> tosses, <laughs> which I think is pretty great. But it's it's just it is very smart script writing. The way that it's designed to um, to entice us to want to see who is our protagonist because it just. We don't know when it starts. Yeah, I, it works so well to just bring us into into the story. And, and I think by the time we actually meet him, by the time we see him at his dinner, he's so charming and so bumbling uh, that you just you just latch on and, and, and really enjoy that ride. And it makes for all of these sort of major plot points, right, the, the major elements where he— he is, uh, you know, he's presented with the fact that the the dam is in fact uh, uh, already in motion, and and Saunders presents the bill that he was uh, he was squirreled away to miss the discussion on the floor of the Senate. Um, you know, that's a major point of his growing awareness when he has the meeting with Payne and Payne confesses his uh, his compromise. That's a major point, and when he finally, um, you know, is confronted by Saunders in the train station as he's about to leave, and she convinces him that he's the man to lead change in Senate around this, but he has to do something big. And they go off to get a drink, and, and that leads, obviously, to the filibuster. Um, is it's, It is just textbook perfect to me, and I just have it, I'm, I'm sucked in every step of the way. Yeah, I agree. Uh, script is written by Sidney Bunchman, uh, Sidney Butchman has written obviously a lot of uh, quite I think popular it's Buckman. films. Buckman, Buckman, yeah, Butch. You know what? <laughs> I look at it, I see like three extra N's in it. It's B U N C H M A N N. That's what how I see it. That's not how it's spelled, but that's how I see it. Oh, that's fantastic. He wishes he had more N's. Sidney he does. does. He does. Sidney yes. Buckman. Uh, Holiday. Catherine Hepburn. Cary Grant. Talk of the town. Want Cary Grants. He uh, was bl- another blacklisted. That's come up quite a bit in the last uh, few shows. Um, yeah. yeah, he was blacklisted uh, because he refused to provide names, and he was fined, given a year suspended sentence, and then, uh, yeah, he finally returned to screenwriting in the '60s, working on Cleopatra and the Group. You like you like his stuff, then? Is what you're telling me? I like, I, yeah, I think he has some good stuff. You know what I find really interesting what? about the way that the Oscars worked back then is that he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Writing Screenplay. And Louis R. Foster, who wrote the unpublished story, uh, a gentleman from Montana, was nominated for Best Writing Original Story. And ended up winning the Oscar. Um, Sidney Buckman lost to Sidney Howard, who wrote Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's, it's, 
it seems so strange to me that they split those into two writing categories back then. It's like saying, wow. well, Stephen, Stephen King wrote the original story, so we're going to nominate him for that Oscar, but then we're going to nominate uh, Frank Darabont for writing, writing the actual screenplay for another Oscar. And then see Stephen King win. Right. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting to me that they actually had that as a separate writing category. Back That's then. fascinating. I had no yeah. idea. And the interesting thing is Louis R. Foster is the only person who won an Oscar for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for Best Writing Original Story. Wow. That's funny. Yeah. Who knew? Besides, besides you, I guess. Besides, <laughs> besides me, yes. yes. Uh, who else you want to talk about? Well, um, Dmitry Tiomkin. Russian composer who has uh, written just a bunch of amazing scores, did a great bit of Americana for this. I, I really like the music. I think he did a bit kind of like what uh, happened in Gone with the Wind, where he actually took some nice little Americana tunes and integrated them into the score. And I think it works really nicely in this. I agree with you. I, I, I enjoyed this. I'm not a big fan of marches. And uh, pomp and circumstance of much Americana, but this was a nice score. Yeah, I think that sort of stuff works well in context of the film. Yeah. Um, Joseph Walker, cinematographer, we've talked about him on It Happened One Night and all the amazing things that, uh, that he has done in his life as far as his patents and all that sort of stuff. But um, I got to say, watching this film, I was like... Oh, it's nice watching a film where I feel like there's really a guy who's doing some really interesting things with the camera behind it, unlike Ninochka. Because I just like, God, the lighting was so much more interesting. Yeah. The the framing was much more interesting. It just didn't feel as stagey. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, some of that credit I think goes to I and I'm I think it goes to Lionel Banks uh in the art department. Or, or you know, who else gets that that production design credit because this film i think did a really good job i mean most of it was shot on set some of it was shot uh on location in uh, I, I think baltimore and washington dc but most of it was shot on set they they built a uh, a senate chamber and and you know there's a lot of pride in the design of that senate chamber and it looks terrific uh it's huge set huge set and particularly the continuity between the main senate chamber proper and all of the various hallways and cloakrooms and offices off of these things and i think they just did a terrific job with this set really really thorough yeah Absolutely, and that's a, that's a very good point. Um, but and, and then even beyond those, I mean, you get some just some really interesting dark uh, scenes lit where we we see Taylor on the phone or something, and it's just like surprisingly dark. Um, and then some great framing, which I think uh, you know is tribute to Capra as well as Walker. I love the scene when um, Smith is talking to Payne's daughter. And he stays on the hat Ugh. the whole time. We're following Smith's uh, hands as he's holding his hat and he's fumbling. And we get yes. the entire subtext of what's going on in that conversation just by watching his hat. That just is fantastic filmmaking. So right true. So true. I And the way he drops it and the way she giggles as you I mean you can you just it's too it makes it so easy to visualize what is going on in that scene it feels almost like a radio drama yeah. for that sequence it's just perfect i wanted to uh jumping back over to the acting category i think we absolutely have to bring up the fantastic harry carey 
as the vice president or president of the Senate, as he is in this film. Not normally a an actor who is in this sort of film. Typically, he was in the Westerns. But uh, he made a transition really well to somebody who feels right at home in the Senate. He's so good as the uh, as the, I guess you could say, the person embodying the audience's reaction to everything that's going on in the Senate. Um, it's just, I mean, he has very few words, but everything, I mean, he got nominated for a supporting actor Oscar because everything is going on in his face as he's watching what Jeff is doing in Congress. It's, it's just, it's so good. I love that he is as president of the Senate comic relief because I can't help but laugh every time I see him smile knowingly and have to cover his mouth because of right. what's going on in the Senate chamber. It's just great. It's so good. He's he's just right on all yeah. the way through. I just really loved him in this. Um, and then I think the last person that I wanted to bring up was Dub Taylor, who he's got a very bit part in this, um, almost to a point where you wouldn't even recognize that he's in there. I think he's, he's one of the press people, and you see him, you catch him a few times, uh, most notably when Smith storms into the press room and tries to beat up that one uh, reporter. Um, Dub Taylor is just one of those faces that is uh, that I grew up with as somebody who is just like this this classic Western face. But you look at, you can't take it with you. You see him as the xylophone player. You see him popping in here. He's another guy like Eddie Arnold yeah. who just shows up as a bit player and just lives the role. He's, he's just great. And And once you see his face... Uh, you you will not forget him. You will not forget him in Back to the Future Three. Uh, yeah, you right. will not forget him in Maverick in the Wild Bunch. Uh, I mean, he is he's in. Well, I mean, the guy's got two hundred and fifty one credits. The guy's in everything. He really uh, is. If it was a western, he was probably in it. Yeah, pretty much. He was in the Rescuers. He was yeah. a, a voice in the Rescuers. That's right. He was. That's my fivel. Is it <laughs> Bernard and Miss Bianca? Please. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was hot list of actors. Yeah. Um, one more note about uh, Capra. This is his last film with Columbia Pictures. We talked about with uh, um, uh, it happened one night how he got along really well with uh, Harry Cohn, who was running uh, Columbia. Their relationship uh, was strained a little bit um, just because of the the way that Capra would spend money. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't an overspender, but he would push it. And and I think Cohn panicked quite a bit about things. Like Cohn told him that he could only uh, shoot uh, he could shoot as many takes as he wanted, but he could only print one take. And so you know, Capra found a way to get around that by basically he would shoot multiple multiple takes in the same shot. Like he would he would uh, keep the camera rolling as soon as one was done, and have them do it again and again, so that when they printed the take, he was getting like three takes. And so you know, he would find ways like that to uh, to kind of get his way a little bit. And Cone and he had some had I wouldn't say it was a falling out, but I think that. Um, Capper really decided after this that it was time for him to step out and do some more on his his own. I mean, he was a big name at the time. He really was. And so and because of filming the Liberty Bell ringing here from this, he ended up creating Liberty Films. Huh. Fancy that. And actually along with 
Jimmy Stewart, he also went off to war. And he ended up shooting a bunch of wartime documentaries, I think Why We Fight. I think he shot seven of these films. And he integrated a lot of Nazi footage. And um, it really took a toll on him. So after this, his films get much darker. Uh, it happened one night. We did talk uh, at, at great length uh, about this uh, wonderful filmmaker, and you can listen to that. It was episode 94. Uh, that was, gosh, that was a while ago. That was back in August of 2013. Search for that mm. on the website now. A little while ago. I know. All right. Uh, how did it do? Uh, we've, we've talked about the, uh, we've talked about one Oscar. It had what, 11 nominations? It had 11 nominations. This film uh, yeah, was received well. Um, at the Oscars, at least, although it only won the one for Lewis Foster. Um, Columbia Pictures, uh, Frank Capra was nominated for Outstanding Production, and he was nominated for Best Director as well. Jim Stewart, Best Actor. Um, he didn't win. Jimmy Stewart ended up winning the very next year for Philadelphia Story, and people, some people say that he won that because he, uh, everybody kind of wanted him to win for this film. Who knows? Mm. Uh, Sidney Buckman, like I said, was nominated for Best Writing Screenplay. Um, Harry Carey and Claude Rains were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. The winner, of course, was Thomas Mitchell, who's great in this as Diz. But, of course, um, he – and also, he was also in Gone with the Wind. But, of course, Thomas Mitchell won Best uh, Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in Stagecoach that he had played. Right. He was one of those really busy people in 1939. Um, Lionel Banks lost Best Art Direction to Gone with the Wind. Gene Havlick and Al Clark lost Best Film Editing to Gone with the Wind. Dimitri Tiomkin uh, lost Best Music Scoring to The Wizard of Oz. And John P. Lividary lost Best Sound Recording to When Tomorrow Comes. Um, it was a film that was received uh, modestly. I, I mean, when it premiered, it, they had the premiere in D.C., and all of the press people and all of the senators absolutely hated it. They were so offended by it, and they thought that the film was just saying all the wrong things, um, which strikes me as interesting that the senators were saying that. It's like, hmm. It feels like if <laughs> you're the senator to bring that up, you know, it, 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 this is a uh, the one who smelt it, dealt it kind of a situation. <laughs> right. That's exactly what it seems like. like really? <laughs> really? You're going to sure? say that? Are you sure you're upset about that, senator? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even the, the the senator from Montana and his family, they were so upset that they walked out of the screening. I mean, they were all just, they all felt like, you know, Capra was making a dig on their system. And I, I you know, uh, obviously time has changed and it, it was received well by audiences. So at least there's that. But uh, yeah, it did, uh, it did kind of, you know, make it harder for them to get out of the gate. And Capra was kind of flabbergasted. He really... Uh, it was taken by surprise by the whole thing. But this thing cost $1.9 million to make at the time, which is about $31.8 in our dollars. It uh, ended up grossing domestically about $9 million, so it was still a handsome amount of money to make, which is about $150.8 million. So all told, it did pretty well for itself. Not as good as Gone with the Wind, but it did have an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $922.5 uh, per finished minute, so it's it still did pretty well. It's one of those. It's it is a super frustrating uh, year to talk about, but a super frustrating film to talk about because I think it holds up so well over time, uh, particularly compared to uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, for me in terms of just enjoying 
watching the film. Yeah, absolutely. There was an actual Jeff Smith who ran for office in 2004. Uh, a, a documentary filmmaker followed him and made a film called Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? And this is a Missouri politician. Uh, Jeff Smith uh, was the uh, a Democrat running in Missouri, and uh, this filmmaker, Frank Popper, followed him. And Jeff Smith, unfortunately, did not end up getting into office. And then after the fact, he it, actually several years after the film even came out, August 2009, Jeff Smith pled guilty and was sentenced to a year and a day in prison for his involvement in federal election law violations committed during the congressional campaign depicted in the film and the subsequent cover-up. <laughs> To my point earlier, there is no Mr. Smith out there anymore. Not that even the real Jeff the Smith. humanity. <laughs> That's oh, horrible. I know. That's so, sad. so dark. It really is. It's just, it's sad uh, that it's like, that's just further proof. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I was going to say, I was curious about filibusters. It's like, okay, so where, uh, who had the longest filibuster? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't. Because there was a, a filibuster fairly recently yeah, back it, in uh, 2013. Right. March, well, that wasn't the longest, right? No, it wasn't. That was Rand Paul uh, filibuster on uh, uh, C proposed CIA director John Brennan's confirmation. But the longest spoken filibuster in American history was by Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who went on for 24 hours and 18 minutes in filibustering the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Wow. I'm sure that was, that was a real barn burner. I'm sure. You know, it, but it's interesting because I was like, that's a really long time to be standing there talking. How does he do it? And so they had some... Uh, little notes about his preparation. Thurmond took a steam bath earlier in the day to rid his body of excess liquid to avoid the potential for any accidents in the chamber. He went to the floor armed with cough drops and malted milk tablets. He allowed others to make short remarks and ask questions during his time, allowing him to sneak off to the cloakroom to gobble a sandwich. And he had his aide wait in the cloakroom with a pail when he was about to step down from the dais in case of an emergency evacuation. <laughs> Things you have to think wow. about when you're getting ready to stand in front of people and talk for 24 straight hours. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, you know, as you're talking, I brought up the, the list. A lot of them get up in that twenty over 20-hour 20 mark, right? The top five are all over. Well, no, the top three are over 25, but 18 hours and number four and 16 hours number four. That's a long time to talk. That is a really long time to talk. I I find it such an interesting element to our political system. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's very Roman. Yeah, and the funny thing, of course, is that the Senate passed the bill and Thurman's uh, marathon didn't change a single vote. Right. Which Sad. I think is that's the case also with very a lot Roman. Of these. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, thumbs uh, down. That's right. <laughs> Black marble to you. Now go throw up. Uh, let's uh, let now let's rank it. I think we should do let's that. do it. All let's right. Do it. I have my black and white marble, and I am ready to drop them for you, Andy, at flickchart.com/slash/the-next reel, and you should go there and you should line them up and see if your films uh, match our top films, uh, and uh, as we stack rank them, and I think this one's going to do fairly well. That's my I that's think my so bet. Too. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Hot Fuzz. I'm saying Mr. Smith. I am too.
Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? I'm saying Mr. Smith. So am I. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Fight Club, Pete? Oh, dear. (laughs) Uh, I I note that you are not speaking. I'm saying Mr. Smith, actually. Are you really? I am. Huh. It, I, I love Fight Club. I think yeah. there's so much going on in Fight Club. But Mr. Smith ends up moving me uh, in, in a way that uh, that I like to be moved. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I will go with Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm saying Mr. Smith. I do like how Butch and Sundance move me. <laughs> I mean, it's no Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. But I will be going with Mr. Smith. All right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Or Touch of Evil. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Absolutely. That's actually an easy one. For that me. is an easy yeah. one. Yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Seven. Now it's now it's more challenging. It is more challenging. Wow. Here. Um at no point in Mr. Smith did we need to find out what's in the box. <laughs> nope. Um, then again, the same could be said about, uh, seven. We had to find out what was in the box. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time not picking I really, Capra. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm torn on this one, actually, yeah, because I, because seven is in my top five. Yes. But right now I'm feeling like Mr. Smith, there is, there's something about the, the classic sensibilities that Capra brings here about this, this, this fight of innocence to uh to do something better it's it, i i don't think that it's a uh, you know people always say capricorn uh with uh capra films and we talked about capra-esque and the whole thing last time yeah i i don't find it corny i find there's an honest an, an honesty to the innocence presented in the film that uh creates a power of its own yeah yeah, I I agree, and I mean, Mr. Smith did did very well in my own uh, my own ranking. Um, but I, I'm gonna have to say, uh, Mr. Smith. I'm so torn. I'm like back to seven now. You are just because I said is, that. No, I I I was I was uh, you know I I was waxing philosophical about Mr. Smith, but I was just. I was debating with myself. I'm still debating with myself. I'm torn. Huh. I'll go with Mr. Smith. It's a strong film. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it really is a really good film. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Raising Arizona. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I agree. What is happening? (laughs) I was not but, expecting this. Strangely, <laughs> this is the peril of flick chart because that was an easy one for me. That is an easy rank for me. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Pete, or Network. Network. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to get pretty, get up pretty early to give us a new number one, my friend. A new number yeah. one is a that's a tougher battle. I I'm I'm half leaning to Mr. Smith though. Really? Or not. I am, I am. 
but I'll go with network. Mr. I, I mean, me, Mr. It makes me a little nervous to like all of a sudden, oh, our top five has been rattled so much <laughs> the last few months. <laughs> Whew. I, so, okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll give it to, I'll give it to network. Uh, Mr. Smith is number two. We have a new number two. Uh, ben Lott will be happy to know that Mad Max Fury Road has been bumped out of the top five. <laughs> Oh, now it's Network. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, raising Arizona, seven and Jaws. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Man, Jaws is at number five. How the mighty have fallen. That is amazing. That's just amazing. It's uh, a strong top five. It's a strong top ten. I mean, it, it's really... It is. It's a strong set of films. I am happy with that ranking, actually. I, that feels really good. We'll see if I'm just completely hungover in the morning. <laughs> uh, so. I, yeah, I, I'm thrilled with it. I think I think it's a it's a good film. Being in the top five, I think is a is definitely a fair place. This to me exemplifies the great films of 1939 more so than what we've talked about thus far. I really uh, just feel very passionately about this film. Yeah, me too. And uh, we sh- we probably should have put this last in the series because now we go on to more 1935. And I'm not confident that they're going to live up to my feelings about this film. The uh, I was actually thinking we should have done it last week for the 4th of July. It oh, yeah, you're at a good point. <laughs> it seemed a little more fitting, but yeah. uh, that's all right. It's all good. Where do we go in uh, for, for our next week? Uh, we are going to uh, get into the gangster world a little bit with uh, the Roaring Twenties. I'm excited to see this one. I haven't seen it before. Me too. Very excited to see that. Until then, I'm going to go to bed. All right. I got to go out and drink this over. So I'm going to start, and we're going to move down. Okay. So I'm going to start right in the middle. It's a three-star uh, from Bethel Owen. Uh, not up to the standard of It's a Wonderful Life. There are nice things about this movie. The ending is weird and sudden, though, and I can't help but thinking of Rand Paul while watching this film. So what's so great about Mr. Smith? He doesn't seem to do anything except make people feel like confessing their evil doings, and then he faints. Pretty weak. I definitely prefer It's a Wonderful Life, Capra's better film. <laughs> yeah, take that, Mr. Smith, That's you weakling. There's <laughs> a weakling. What did he do? He wore sensible shoes for the day. He brought an apple and thermos. whoop de doo <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. All right, what do you got? Well, I've got a, I've got a one star by Richard A. Smith who says... I love this movie. (laughs) So I think he's still working on what star ratings actually mean. And then he follows that up with, how can I make my 13-year-old daughter watch this with me? She doesn't want to. And then, of course, the best part of this is all of the comments. Seriously? Wanting parenting advice on an Amazon review site? 
You rate this movie at one star because you can't get your daughter to watch it with you. I give your parenting skills one half of one star and your comprehension of how to rate a movie one half of one star. If it were possible to give zero stars, I would. But Amazon does not allow zero star ratings. And then uh, another person <laughs> replied, Force her at gunpoint. That usually works. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, Sometimes you got to wonder. Right. Wow. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>